0: Hey, Dan, are you there? I think so. All right, we got you, buddy. (laughs) Okay, all right, well, we're gonna get started then because you're in and we're all connected. All righty, it is the 17th of June and welcome to the Great Lakes Vegetable Producers Network, a live weekly roundtable discussion during the growing season for commercial vegetable producers in the Great Lakes and Midwest region. We broadcast live via Zoom, at 12.30 Eastern Time, 11.30 Central Time, every Wednesday from the first week of May to the first week of September. We have certified crop advisor credits available for today's episode. If you are a certified crop advisor, uh, you can enter your name and email in the chat box. Later we will email you the, the code that you need. It looks like we lost Dan, darn it. Well, we'll, e- we'll email you the QR code that you need to get the credits. Uh, I'm one of your hosts today, Ben Phillips from Michigan State University Extension. My co-host today is Dennis Van Dyke from the Ontario Ministry of Agriculture, Food, and Rural Affairs. Um, did I get that right, Dennis?
1: Yeah. Yeah, All sounds like right. right to me. <laughs> cool.
0: Uh, Mike Reinke is our MSU person who's working on this backside as our little Zoom engineer. He's not little. He's a full-grown man, actually. Um, but Dennis, what are you doing today? or What are we doing today? <laughs>
1: Well, today uh, we're going to chat a little bit about uh, predicting press pressure. So uh, our first guest we're going to have is Cheryl Truman from the University of Guelph here in Ontario. Uh, Cheryl studies pathology in vegetables and sugar beets uh, and has a really cool sort of late blight spore trapping project and, um, for early detection. So we'll talk to her about that. Our second guest we have is Dan Eagle from Purdue University. Uh, Purdue, Dan, studies vegetable pathology in Vincennes in southern Indiana, and he helped develop a kind of cool disease modeling system called MELCAST. We'll talk to him about that. And our third guest is uh, Keith Mathen from Michigan State University EnviroWeather. Uh, Keith is a trained entomologist and runs the EnviroWeather Station Network in Michigan that uses weather data to uh, model insect life stages. So all of our guests today will be answering questions about some of the kind of concepts behind using weather data to more efficiently spend your time uh, and money and energy to manage disease and insects uh, on your crops. So if you have any questions for any guests uh, on Zoom or joining us, you can use the, the question and answer box down at the bottom. You click on there type in your questions anonymously if you'd like. Um, if you like any questions up there, you can upvote them as well. Uh, our guests will tackle these questions kind of at the end, in the back half of the show. Uh, so put them up there as well. If you put them in the chat, we'll we will get them as well, so you can put them there also so Dan welcome uh, I think we'll start with when we start with Keith first I'll kind of start it off with a, um, insects are kind of a good way to start it off I think so what sort of weather factors Keith uh, could be used to kind of predict a pest or insect activity
2: uh, well insects for the most part um, the, the most powerful tool we have is, is measuring um, heat basically temperature um, and that's really because um, Insects, uh, have the, they don't have the ability to regulate their body temperature. So they're gonna be the same temperature as the environment. So by measuring the temperature in the environment, you're essentially measuring the, the temperature of, of the insect. And we know that um, biological processes, which at their basis are, are really just chemical reactions, those are very affected by temperature too. And so um, the, the warmer it is, generally speaking, the, the um, faster these reactions or processes will go. And, and those are all involved in, in developing insects. So there's, there's usually a, a minimum kind of a base or a threshold, a, a lower threshold, that when you get above those temperatures, insects start developing. And there's, in some cases, there's an upper threshold so that you know, some biological processes just shut down at, at certain um, certain temperatures. So, you know, we can calculate the amount of heat that occurs based on, on these upper and lower limits for a certain period of time. And then we have kind of the, we know um, how insects develop or or we can study, you know, measure actually, you know, put insects at different temperatures and see how long it takes them to develop to kind of give us a, um, an idea of how, uh, how long it's gonna take them to go from, say, egg to a larva or to an adult. And you know, that would really depend on, I guess, what really the, the important stage is for, for um, you know, is this a leaf-feeding larva that we're worried about? Is it the adults that are chewing on leaves or fruit? That, that uh, kind of depends on um, what the most important thing is uh, to control. Stage to control, um, but yeah. So that's that's basically the the um, the basics of it. There is a little bit of rainfall sometimes. You know, you can gather heat, and if it's really dry, um, some insects require that in order to emerge. So they they can detect that it's too dry to be out. It's just too risky. They'll desiccate. That kind of yeah, I think that's in in, in a nutshell for the, the most most part.
1: Yeah, very cool. So, so if I was a grower, how could I sort of predict when insects might, you know, show up for me.
2: Sure. Well, you know, we're all kind of um, we, we have a, a seasonal clock, basically, you know, so or a calendar that gives us kind of a general idea of, of when things are going to be out. Um, but you know, so so I could probably go to any grower and say, hey, when are Japanese beetles going to be out? And they could give it to me within two to four weeks, right? You know, or when is this best going to be out? That that kind of stuff we can we can generally do. But um, if you have to control a specific stage, then you might be two or three weeks late if you, you know, kind of just go by what it was last year. So, um, so really the... Um, I mean, there is some benefit to having a historical record of, of you know, when you saw these insects on your um, on your farm in your in your production business. Um, but uh, it's it's very helpful to have um, somebody who works in um, maybe an entomologist or a pathologist who can kind of do the math, I guess, for you know, um, describing how long it takes for, uh, for something to happen. And there are several, you know, outfits, um, both at the university, I think probably most of the ones that I'm most familiar with are um, university programs or they started at university. Um, but they can develop models that predict when these insects are gonna occur. So it's, um, it's and that's a general kind of prediction. Probably much, well, much more precise than that. Two to four weeks we can do as humans, but uh, that it um, really gives the uh, the grower or scout a good time frame for when they should be looking for uh, the signs of, of having a pest.
1: Are certain insects that are better that can be easier predicted? I guess there are there certain ones that are easier to predict? I guess.
2: Uh, well, you know what, what really uh, matters is how important it is to the commodity. That's, that's, I think, um, that's, that's probably a very important thing to consider too. Uh, But yes, there are, you know, insects are pretty much what we would call degree day driven. So making models for insects generally is is pretty easy. Um, So it's pretty straightforward for for doing that. But yeah, I I think that's, you know, that's basically the answer for that. Cool.
0: Cool. Thank you, Keith. Um, We might come back to you with a follow-up a little later, Um, but I want to move on to uh, another guest, Dan Eagle, one of our pathologists on the call from Purdue. Um, So Dan, Keith just told us how insects are basically more or less a one variable prediction pest. Temperature can pretty much give you the book on what's, what's going to happen. If you put enough time and energy into uh, checking temperature data and seeing when insects emerge, you can pretty much line it up um, in that uh, the importance of that pest can then drive the research that goes behind, you know, mapping that. But with diseases, I get a sense that temperature alone isn't enough to predict when a disease may be occurring, may be coming. Can you, can you tell me a little bit more about you know factors that play into disease occurrences uh, well first of all can you hear me okay? Perfectly okay so yeah
3: when, when Keith was talking about the the, the temperature factor and I like well that sounds a lot like uh, a lot of the, the, the models that, that are available for, for diseases the difference is you have in every every fungus like I suppose every insect has um, a, a, a temperature optimum right? Uh, and you, can, you could grow them in a Petri plate and, and certainly find that, that temperature optimum, right? But what we really wanna know is uh, whether they're gonna form disease. And most, not all, but, but most fungi require leaf wetness or very, very high humidity at the same time. So with, so it is temperature optimum, but it's temperature optimum at the same time when there's also leaf wetness. So, so for example, for the Melcast, cast, what we do is we measure leaf wetness are, and and the temperature uh at those that at those hours of leaf wetness, so if there's ten hours at at the uh temperature optimum for that disease uh then then the the like, likelihood that the disease was de- will, will develop is going to be very great if you have that same temperature optimum when um uh, and, and it's perfectly dry like it has been for the last week uh there there will be no disease so so I guess you could say there's two factors um, uh, t- to be a little bit more complicated. Uh, what we do with uh, MelCast is is we uh, actually use 90% humidity as a stand in for a leaf wetness. And when we started off, we had these little suitcase type uh, uh, machines. I can see Cheryl smiling there, remembering all this stuff. But um, we uh, see suitcase type machines, you could actually kind of lick your 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 finger and run it across that 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 meter It would actually generate uh, leaf wetness so that they were actually generating leaf wetness uh, but it turns out that growers tend to run over those things in the field and and you have to pay somebody to go around and and get those. <laughs> so now now what we do is we have uh forecasting, so we 'll kind of dial in a location and they 'll dial in. Uh, the temperature, which is not real hard, but they'll also dial in the uh, uh, 90% humidity, figuring that if there's 90% humidity, it's probably either raining or there's a strong dew out there. So so that, it's a little bit more complicated than insects, but not as fun. Mm-hmm. How, about, how about light levels, cloudiness? I don't, as far as I know, uh, that that doesn't matter, except that, uh, it, that it might mean that you have leaf wetness a little bit longer. Mm okay and then and then, of course, you have to consider the host in there, so a lot of these experiments when they've been done, they've been done in growth chambers uh, you have uh, disease a with with host uh, uh, z and and you you vary the uh, temperature and leaf wetness hours um, and, and to to see you know exactly when when the optimum is um, so uh, it really shouldn't the, the cloudiness affecting the leaf wetness shouldn't matter as long as we're you know, accurately measuring leaf wetness.
0: Okay, um, so you briefly mentioned MELCAST while you, um, while you were explaining the suitcases that measured leaf wetness. Can you briefly describe what that, what that is for us?
3: So MELCAST is, um, we, we, we look at, at two different hosts. We look at uh, cantaloupe, and, and we look at watermelon and we look at foliar diseases, not every foliar disease, but we look at alternary leaf blight, anthracnose and gummy stem blight. These are the three diseases that uh, we find that, 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 that growers have to spray routinely uh, during the season. Conventional growers spray routinely during the season. And our aim, Dr. Rick he was retired now. Um, he, he developed the system in, in cooperation with the grad students Right, it, it, right as I came. I kind of came just on the back end of that. Um, so I've been involved more in the implementation, but the way it works, uh, used to be, you, you'd call up and you'd get these, these numbers, you know, through the t- telephone, you'd have to listen w- when your site came up, then you'd, you know, write it down in a book or something. Now it's all on on the internet. Uh, and it's, <laughs> we, we've gone through a whole series of, uh, iterations at one point they would email me these spreadsheets and I would have to take the spreadsheets and, you know, uh, calculate each one and then get the data and, and it'd be entered into the computer now. And, and, and you, you maybe may uh, have, have doubts about the milk cast system since I had so much trouble with the computer and getting into this <laughs> the system here, but, but, but it's, it's, they're, they're better people than I am involved in this. And, and it seems to work pretty well because they're involved in it. But, but the way, the way it works is, uh, somehow, uh, I work, I'm working with uh, Maine, Glenn Kohler at, at, at University of Maine. Uh, we used to work with SkyBit until they went out of business. And uh, e- either our, our server goes into their server or their server goes into our server and picks up this data every day. And it automatically posts it on melcast.info. And, and every day, those, those values are there. So a grower can look at those values. And let's say I spray today. Today is my first spray. We we recommend that growers spray at vine touch when the vines are touching within the row. You can't see me. Um, vines are touching within a row. You spray. You go back. You look at what the uh, what the values were on that particular day, and you write that down. And I have a calendar you can write it down on. Um, and and then uh, what you do is you spray every two weeks unless the Melcast values tell you to spray more frequently. So there's one value, 20 is at the threshold uh, for the environmental favorability index, 20 for, for, for cantaloupe and 35 for watermelon. So you spray your, your spring, uh your watermelon, you, you've written down like a value of 50, for example. Um, and you know that in two weeks you have to spray again, unless the values go up quickly enough and you spray uh, at, sooner than that. So let's say uh, the values go up, it gets to be uh, 25 in, in 10 days, um, then, then you're, you're kind of watching closely. So you, but if, if it gets to 35 or close to 35, you would go ahead and spray. But even if it doesn't get to 35, uh, you would, uh, 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 you want to spray sooner, I guess, you, you, rather than, than wait for the values to expire. Uh, what I tell growers, uh, then after you spray it again, uh, you would write down those values. What, what I tell growers is, um, it's like changing the oil in, in your in your truck. So um, you, you you would take the uh, you would change the oil. You write down the mileage, and then the the values keep going up. They keep accumulating like the EFI values, and then uh, you know in four thousand miles you need to change it again, just like you know for milcast in thirty five values you have to spray again. But there's always that two week period built in, and the re- the reason is because um, the plant grows, so there's tissue that hasn't been covered. And also some weathering, even if there's no rain or some weathering of the, the chemical, the, the fungicide on the surface.
0: That's great, Dan. So in your, in your model, MELCAST, uh, the that va- takes temperature data, it takes moisture data, it mashes it up, spits out one value, and then that value adds to itself every day. And yeah. that's called the Environmental Favorability Index, which sounds similar to other models I've heard of, like um, TomCAST, used in tomatoes or also rejiggered and used in asparagus right. and carrots. But, ba- and, and then those, I think they call it a d- disease severity value or a, a DSV, d- same thing, bas- basically yeah. the same thing. Okay. That's a, uh, wow, that couldn't get, couldn't get much simpler. It might uh, save some, save some sprays too. If, uh, if someone was just on like a seven day thing and there was no reason to, um, to spray every seven days because the values weren't lining up, uh, to be severe. That's, that's pretty neat. Um, So, uh, I'm going to toss it back to, to Dennis, um, to, uh, to ask, uh, Cheryl some questions.
1: Sure. Um, well, based on what Dan just said, it sounds like it's important to know, you know, when the risk of disease is going to show up in the field, but at the same time, it also might be nice to know, you know, whether the disease or pathogen is actually there in the air or the field or yeah, or, or in the area. So I understand, um they can be trapped potentially how does that work
4: yeah so um like dan and ben were mentioning and you these systems these forecasting systems we're talking about trying to quantify the risk of disease right so that's kind of what it it comes down to and so for some pathogens that cause disease knowing if the pathogen is there might be really helpful to determine help determine what your risk is so I think if I heard correctly, the diseases caused by the pathogens in in the male cast, for example, um, I think those all overwinter, okay, in that region. Um, And then for TomCast as well, TomCast targets early blight and centauria leaf spot and anthracnose, and those pathogens all overwinter, but we have pathogens that affect vegetable crops that don't overwinter um, necessarily in our region. So, and I'm in Ontario, Canada, so, one of those pathogens that doesn't always overwinter in, in, in the area is phytophthora infestans. So there's a potential for it too on, on potatoes, but in um, general, we don't always know. And so um, if we're talking about uh, measuring disease risk, looking at can we determine if that pathogen is actually present, um, you might have the environmental conditions for that disease to occur, for late blight to occur okay, caused by pachythera infestans, but if the pathogen isn't there, then you're not going to have disease. If you have the environmental conditions and the pathogen, then you have good potential for infection to occur and for the disease to occur. So there are lots of different kinds of score traps out there. Some of them are may, maybe better suited for research in terms of like the biology of a pathogen, but there are others that are, have good potential for application Um for kind of a spore trapping network um, to try and determine on an annual basis, is that pathogen present or when does it first appear? So we have a project here right now where we're um, trying to trap Phytophthora infestans, which causes late blight in tomato and potato to to determine, can we use the presence absence as a trigger to change a grower's fungicide program? Um, Can you use just that spore trap value uh, or can you use it in, in collaboration with a late blight model that looks at the environmental risk? Um, and then the whole goal is to help growers decide, really to decide what's the risk on my crop right now. The growers here, in processing tomatoes anyway, um, have a program in place for managing some fo- like foliar fungal diseases like early blight and septoria and, and anthracnose. And so the question becomes, can they use this spore trap to alter their program to also protect against the late light? Does that Very answer your question? <laughs> yeah, <laughs>
1: definitely. I, I think you mentioned there's some different spore traps. So which ones are better suited for like a spore trapping network sort of idea?
4: Yeah, so I think with a spore trapping network, you want to think about how easy is the trap to use? So there's lots of spore traps. Some of them are easier to use than others. What we're testing, we're testing one called the spornado Chap, which is a passive spore trap. So that means that it just relies on the wind to move air particles through kind of filter. It almost looks like a megaphone that you put on top of a pole and uh, the air passes through and then that filter gets sent to you a lab um, for uh, identification to see if there's any. Of DNA. We're also testing a, a roto rod trap and that is a type of active trap which basically hangs upside down and there's two little rods that have a thin layer of silicone on it and those spin um, and then capture particles from the air. So the spinning, we know how fast that goes so then we know how much air is in contact so then you can quantify it. So with, if it's a passive spore trap, you can't quantify how many spores per meter cubed. If it's an active one, you can quantify. But, so there may be advantages and disadvantages to that if you need a certain amount of a spore load to get a disease occurring. Um, the the active trap, though, needs a power source, and there's a little computer in there that you have to program. So it is a bit more complicated to set up, I and mean, I, you know, I don't think you need a degree in computers to to be able to set up but it is a bit more complicated so those are the two main traps that we are we're testing um yeah i could go on but i'll stop there
0: (laughs) well i wanted to give keith the chance to actually respond um to that because i think that probably in the span of time uh that people have been growing crops uh that trapping spores is pretty new trapping insects not so much and i think trapping spores is also not something that just anyone would do uh that requires a level of of technology and expertise um that i don't think everybody has uh easily probably make some easy mistakes um but with insects keith you want to you want to talk just briefly on what you think uh trapping offers growers uh in conjunction with some of this predictive data in terms of sure when
2: sure cannabis? um so uh, <clears throat> in, in pretty much any model there's a start point um, and basically that's that's kind of the the point where you know um, it's appropriate to start thinking about how much heat is accumulating and how much uh, development's going on uh, and we call that a biofix. So usually um, I mean, there can be a, a particular phenological stage in the plant that is, hey, it's bloom time. We know there's a certain period that happens before leaf bracts are out and, and they're susceptible. Or, but for, for insects, it's, it's basically that's when we know um, that uh, the population is, is beginning to, uh, um, to increase so that we'll, we might see damage. The the thing that's happening though is we're actually um, what what has happened is uh, people have discovered what the actual sex pheromones are for insects. So they take what the the female normally uh, produces to attract males to let them know that she's accepted or you know um, open for mating, uh, and then the the females um, so the, the males are the ones that were actually kept. Capt- capturing in the traps because they're coming to the female pheromone. What really we need is to know exactly when the females are are out, because they're the ones that are gonna lay the eggs. And um, so that's really the kind of more of the key than when the the males come to the traps. But usually you can relate, you'd have to go and look at a bunch of um, fruit or leaves and see when the eggs are coming out, so you know when the males come out, and then you just measure that time um, to when uh, when you start seeing eggs or damage or whatever the the key symptom is. So it's a way of kind of um, uh, I guess recalibrating the beginning of the model because you could have had hot periods and and cool periods before the moths actually emerged, and really a lot of that variability in temperature doesn't really count. It's mm-hmm. it's pinpointing when it's really important to count to, to get that. But yeah, I actually had a um, a question about the spore traps. Is, is there a program to have growers collect uh, samples and send them in? Have you guys done that to kind of?
4: So we haven't done that yet, but the project that we're doing on Late Blight is in collaboration with an agronomist. So they're actually, so I guess the project is delayed this year because of COVID-19, but when it's running, we work with an agronomist that is traveling around and scouting anyway. So their team collects. Uh, we're sampling twice a week, so they collect the, the the filters or the rods, and then those get submitted to the lab. Um, and we get, you know, it's a 24-hour testing, so we hope to have the results within um, 24 to 48 hours. And then we're we're running validation trials where we have all these different scenarios. What do you do with that information? Um, and, and a trial where we have like a standard program with like standard, how we measure risk now versus how we could measure risk with these four traps or the blight cast flight blight model. So, um, so I think there's that potential there, like that is the concept. If we find this to be effective that um, the university wouldn't be running this or my program wouldn't be running this, but an agronomist or a team in a region would, would run that. Um, so as a technology to identify the pathogens on the traps gets faster and faster. I and mean, right now we send it to a lab, but eventually there may be as that can be run with pretty minimal equipment um, kind of locally. So I think that there's down the road, there's potential for that, but there's also lots of questions because just because you find the pathogen in the trap doesn't mean that you will have disease because we have that whole concept of the disease triangle susceptible host favorable environment and a path, the presence of a pathogen. So
2: mm-hmm.
4: the solution could be to have the environmental model and this presence of spores working working together. Mm. I don't know, <laughs> time will tell. Fair enough.
1: That but, sounds really I, cool. Oh, no, sorry, Cheryl, you go.
4: Oh, I just I was going to say that for now, I think how we interpret the information we get from spore traps, we have to just be cautious because, because of that, for that reason. So for example, last year, we did find Phytophthora infestans spores, like I believe it was late July when we first got some positive detections, but we didn't actually see late blight develop at any of our sites or any of our sentinel plots for the whole period that we studied until late August. so So there's that caution there and it's too early to draw conclusions, but I think that's something to be aware of. So just because you see a report that there's spores in the area doesn't necessarily mean that there's a really high risk that that disease is going to develop because we have to look at the environmental factors.
1: Very cool. So I will ask um, this sort of last question to all of you quickly, um, as we're running up to that half hour, are there any programs or, or so, what are the sort of resources that growers could go to uh, for some of the things that you've talked about? Maybe Keith, I'll start with you.
2: Sure, and you know, a lot of it is is region specific. Um, and, uh, I, well, I guess I'm, I'm on my job relatively short period of time, but EnviroWeather has a website where we have stations set out in Michigan and actually a few in Wisconsin. So if there are any Wisconsin folks out there, you can check us out um, there. But it's enviroweather.msu.edu. And we have listings of both crop development models, general weather tools, um, and then insect and disease prediction. So, you know, that's that's kind of one good one. And then I, I have to um, point out the NUA program, N-E-W-A, out of Cornell, um, also would be very appropriate for Great Lakes um, growers. Uh, they're very similar to we are. They have a different kind of... Um, design the, the growers actually purchase the stations and that so they get stations that are where they want them to be. We're kind of we have meteorological concerns too. So you know we, we want to make sure that, that the the weather data can be used by you know uh, other modelers and that kind of thing. But that program's been very successful. And these kinds of things I think
0: Uh oh we got a little chopped off Oh, he might be frozen in time. <laughs> oh, well, well, we'll see what happens. I Okay, well, let's move on to uh, to Cheryl then, I guess.
4: Yeah, well, I forget what the question was, or exactly what the question was.
1: <laughs> uh, where could growers go for more, more resource, more uh, information?
4: For, yeah. yeah, okay, so in Ontario, like I can kind of just speak about Ontario. So Weather Innovations is a company that runs some of these models in some areas, so they run like TomCast and a BeatCast program in some regions of Ontario. Um, I know that if you're in like the Holland Marsh area of Ontario, there are some of these models and degree days that are run out of the Mutt Crops Research Station for kind of carrot and onion pests and probably some other stuff that, that I don't know about. Um, and then, uh, I know OMAFRA puts together some degree day summaries that they send out in their weekly updates. Um, so Dennis is involved with that, I believe. Um, but yeah, and uh, it does kind of depend on the region of Ontario that you're in, um, and it tends to be that the, these programs kind of run more in areas where the vegetable production is more concentrated. But I think if there's interest um, from a part, people in parts of Ontario to run these models, then you know, reach out one of the omafor vegetable specialists or even i can maybe help out with trying to connect but it is a lot of these can be run with some weather like a couple weather stations and if the, the background stuff kind of fills in kind of what dan was talking about with the melcast that the, all those hand calculations don't need to be done anymore so they're it's not that complicated to run once kind of this is set up but you have to have the right weather data collected and so um, and yeah, I guess for the spore trapping network, that's kind of in development. There are some groups that are doing some trapping um, around, but I, and, and in Quebec, actually, they're doing more of this spore trapping. Um, there's some companies there that are doing that as well. So it, it's pretty regional specific in Canada.
0: And those would be in centigrade or Celsius for their degree days?
4: <laughs> yes.
0: <Okay. laughs> um, that weather innovations group, bleeds over into the thumb of Michigan a little bit. And they have a super high density of, of weather stations for their sugar beet growers. It's pretty neat. Yes. Um, I, I'd forgotten about them. So thanks for ma- bringing that up again. Ben, do you have anything to add or Dan, do you have anything to add as well? Oh, you're
3: muted, Dan. As far as resources. Yeah. yeah. So where can um, people go for the mailcast? Where can you get that information if you're listening? So if you go to mailcast.info, um, that, that'll, that'll give you, it, my active site, you know, during the winter, obviously it's it's down, but but you can go there, you can see the values, and then if you cruise around, there's a, 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 there, there's a, a bulletin that describes how to set a system up if you're, you know, one, one of you university folks, uh, but then also one uh, bulletin that I have that uh, t- kind of tells growers how to use it, kind of a how-to uh, type thing. I wanted to mention that, uh, the, but the data, the sites that we have dialed in are uh, heavy down in the southwestern portion of the state where, um, uh, where there's a lot of cucurbit earth but we have them scattered across the state. Uh, some growers have asked for it. I hate to, you know, if one grower uh, someplace asked for a site, that costs me, you know, I don't know how much, going to hundreds of dollars to, to dial that in. So what I like to do is, is have a concentration of growers there Sometimes I've had researchers come to me and say, I want a site there because I'm doing an experiment on watermelons, you know, et cetera, that kind of thing. I wanted, I, if we have a little bit of time, I wanted to mention that when I first started and, and, and started the MELCAST system and talking about, oh, and I send out a newsletter every week too, with, with the table and just kind of a little bit about the narrative, but when I first started, I think people kind of rolled their eyes back in their head when I started talking about it. And from an extension standpoint, I think people are starting to pay attention, and it took a lot of time, um, uh, a lot of gray hair, but um, but the re- I think the, the way that if I've been successful, I think the way when people ask me what to spray, what I start off talking about is when to spray. So they'll say, what should I spray this week? And I say, well, when did you spray last? The milk cast values have been really stable lately, or they've been going up, or you know that kind of thing. And I don't think that Probably most people follow the Melcast to the T, to, to the exact value, but I think they, they, they look at it and say, well, they're going up fast, not going up fast, you know, that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. What I did last year is at the, at the very end of, of, these, of, of all the sites uh, uh, for, the, for the week, I'll put down kind of an average uh, of how much they're going up. You know I kind of averaged it you know during uh, oh, during this week how much they going up so b- by looking at the last column you can automatically kind of see okay it's going up I almost thought about color coding it or something so I just wanted to to say from a, a standpoint of an extension is is a lot of it's kind of a one-on-one uh, and, and and basis and that kind of helps integrate this uh in into into the growers lexicon
4: and build off what Dan mentioned like I was you know TomCast implementation here in Ontario was before my time but when you I talk to people in the industry what they say about TomCast similar to what Dan says is that it's not so much that they want follow everything with the DSVs to the T in terms of the thresholds and when the spray application is but it has really increased awareness of the influence of weather on disease development so yeah, and and, when, and the, the when you apply for sure. So I think that is a, that's kind of an observation that I've made here as well. Um, things have, now that late blight is appearing more sporadically and some of the fungicides we use for the fungal diseases like early blight septoria don't work against late blight necessarily. That's thrown a wrench into things a little bit, but definitely that awareness, um, I think about the influence of the weather on disease development same kind of thing. That's
1: great. Uh, well, thank you so much for joining us, Cheryl, Dan, and Keith. Uh, really appreciate your expertise and time on this week. Uh, what's going on next week, Ben?
0: Yeah. Uh, so on tap for next week, we have a special guest from Cornell named Meg McGrath, and she's going to be talking about the powdery mildew blues. Um, we're getting close to that time when powdery mildew is going to be a question that all of us get. Uh, Cause so many people grow pumpkins. Um, And you can listen to that at the same place, glveg.net slash listen at the same time, 1230 Eastern Time, 1130 Central Time. Um, And this broadcast is brought to you by the North Central Integrated Pest Management Center. And this week we have a special sponsor, um, a company, a little company trying to get up and going called The Bubble. And The Bubble will outfit your farm with a force field that will go 40 feet into the sky Uh, and 40 feet all around the field edges. And it also, I mean, that's just one piece of it. That's just the sensing range. Uh, The critical component that goes along with this bubble is uh, an entire bank of RTK and DNA guided micro missiles that will take out spores and insects as they enter. Um, And they do need to do a personal consultation for the topography of your farm because they need to kind of map it so that it it will not detect things above two feet above the ground because if it were then it would hit the ground and you'd get like craters all over all over the the farm so you don't you don't really want that but uh, yeah the bubble looking for investors now okay yeah so that was um that was our sponsor of the week um. Now we're moving on to live Q&A. Uh, for those of you online or uh, with us in Zoom, you can put a question in the chat bo- bo- chat box or the Q&A box. Um, if, and then at at the end, we'll ask for anyone on the phone if they had a question that hasn't come up. Then they can push star nine, and that will give us a little uh, symbol of like a hand raising. And then we can um, ask you. We can unmute you, and you can ask your question. Um, okay. So the The question we have right now, we've only got one at the moment, um, is in the future, could growers have these spore traps, this is for Dan and Cheryl, could growers have these spore traps um, uh, in their crops to have the most common diseases that are airborne be identified when they send it to a lab? I think Keith asked a similar question earlier, so it might be good to reiterate um, and then a second part is, do you think even further down the line, there could be a test that can be done at the farm level to identify diseases in real time, kind of like the bubble?
4: Yes. <laughs> That's my short answer. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> um, yeah. I think there already is some technology to identify multiple pathogens um, in a score trap. So that exists and we're looking at adding some of that on to the late boy project uh, but that definitely exists and i think there's a potential for that for sure um and yeah could it be done on farm um or like by an agron like a local agronomist or whatever i think that technology is heading in that direction as well um so i don't know of anyone that's implemented that kind of on a commercial basis yet but i think that that I think that that's definitely got potential and then it's more real time or almost real time. Um I think the caution as we move forward with this technology is to think about just because you you find the pathogen and then what does that mean? So if it's a pathogen that does not overwinter in your area then that is informative because it tells you that the pathogen is now present. But if it's a pathogen that we know overwinters on residue, for example, and you're just finding spores, that's probably less informative because it's not a big surprise that that would be present. And then I think the environmental conditions in that environmental modeling is maybe more important or perhaps how many spores are found. So there's just a lot of things to think about in terms of, yeah, I have these spores on my farm, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you panic, right, and go out and spray So there's just lots of questions about how we interpret that. Um, I can give one example on another project that I'm working on, on Cercospora leaf spot and sugar beets actually, but it also has applications to table beets potentially where we do use the BCAS model to time fungicide applications now, and it's also used in Michigan. Mm-hmm. Um, but we are finding that sometimes we find symptoms before the model says we should start spraying. And so I, I'm working right now, collaborating with Jamie, Dr. Jamie Wilbur at Michigan State University, where we're using a different kind of spore trap, which I won't get into, but to quantify how many spores we see early in the season. Um, And she's doing some more modeling work to try and predict what environmental conditions, uh, contribute to spore abundance. And then we're hoping to maybe, uh, look at how do we use beat cast and spore abundance together or a different kind of model to validate that. So, so it's just a caution that just because you find the spores doesn't mean that the sky is falling, but it, so there's just more to know, but the short answer is yes.
0: Cool. All right. Um, So we we just had the one uh, Q&A box question that came in. And so um, I have a question for
1: Dan, if we have time still.
0: We do. We do. Uh,
1: As just as a follow up, you mentioned that you're using 90% humidity kind of as a proxy for leaf wetness. Yeah. I'm just curious, like how you came to that? Like, could you extrapolate that to other models? I think like We've, we've liked to use models that have been developed in other places, but that leaf, the problem with having a leaf wetness sensor on the weather stations is is hard to overcome. So like, could that 90% humidity sort of threshold work, do you think, for other models?
3: Well, so the, the reason, so w- when we started off and when this work was done, and I, and I didn't do the work, um, I, I, but um, it was done it, it, uh, 100%, so it was it, as if there, were, there was leaf wetness. Using 90%, I would say there. I guess there's two reasons for that. One is it because we don't have the, the sensors on the ground in in, in every location. Um, it, it's it's easier to do that. Um, the, the other thing is it makes the model conservative. So we 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 would rather have the um, we, we would rather be conservative and have somebody spray when they don't need to uh, uh, shorten the interval a little bit too much. Then then have somebody lengthen the interval too far. And, and then uh, th- then they if, if there's a problem, then they come to think, oh, well, this doesn't work. I'm not going to follow this model anymore. So that's why it's conservative. So I think the answer to your question is, yeah, I think it could be used, but I think somebody has to realize whether they're using it for TomCast or, or the, the asparagus model, whatever. If you do use 9 percent then, then it is it's a conservative model. And, and you have to kind of think, do you want to live with that, I guess. I guess it depends on whether you, you, you want the growers to, you're more interested in where the growers uh, trust in the model, or are you uh, more interested in spreading the numbers out and saving pesticides, I guess.
0: Right. Okay, Okay. great. Um, so uh, I'd like to open it up for anyone on the phone who has a question that if, if we haven't covered it and you've got something you'd like to ask, then you can push star nine. And then we can take your call. I'll just wait a couple seconds for that. Shouldn't take long to push star nine. And, and uh, I think that we're going uh, to be done then for, the, for this Wednesday's broadcast. So once again, I'd, I'd really like to uh, thank you, Cheryl and Dan and Keith, for joining us today um, for this, this, three, this three guest session. Uh, it's the first for us. So um, I hope you have a good rest of the week. Um, I appreciate your time. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Okay, signing off. All right.